I'm so glad that, that Hannah came in. I love when she does a little. It always makes it so much better. And then I got Ellington's mother. I got Isaiah here. Man, we just ready to go. Man, I don't even feel like talking anymore after that. My goodness. I, I might as well just drop the mic now. Have a good day. <laughs> uh, but I hope everyone has had a great weekend. I know for me it has been absolutely awesome. I haven't seen my parents and my younger siblings in forever. It's been probably a month and a half. You know, I had thought that I got COVID because I was around someone with COVID. Then I actually got COVID, and then I had to recover from COVID. And so it was just a nightmare. And maybe for you guys, you know, maybe you got to spend some time with family this weekend. Maybe you started celebrating Valentine's Day. You could literally, every single, single person in this room just went, (sighs) I mean, that's typically how I respond to Valentine's Day, but you know, perspective is everything. Why not spend today and treat yourself? Buy yourself something nice, buy yourself a meal, go home, Netflix and chill by yourself, you know, whatever that looks like. Yeah, Netflix, see, she's all about it. I'm telling you, it's awesome. It can be great. And if you're with somebody, also enjoy it. Go somewhere nice. If you have kids, have someone watch the kids and go out and have fun, okay? Whew. All right, I'm ready. Today we are talking about love, and it's not at all about that kind of love because I am unqualified to tell someone how to have a perfect marriage and how to find the perfect spouse because I'm still looking. Um, <laughs> but we are talking about love and... Kyrie, shut up. <laughs> um, but no, we are talking about love in the sense of, uh, of loving others. I feel like in our culture today, it's, it's really a big topic to talk about, you know, our personal relationship with Jesus and growing in the secret place. And that stuff is amazing, and it should always be at the top. But something that I feel like we kind of put off to the side a little bit is this idea of loving others. It's like we have personal relationship with God, and then if we love others, then, you know, that's great, but it's not really a requirement. But I'm here to show you today that if you don't have the love for others, then this don't exist. You can't say you love God if you don't love others. I'm getting ahead of myself. But if you have your Bible, we're going to be starting in Matthew chapter 22. So we're going to be kind of jumping around today. So I'm going to start towards the end of Matthew, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning of Matthew But I want us to read something that Jesus said because this was the foundation of his entire ministry and should be ours as well. And as you turn there, I want to give you some context because it seems like this conversation that's happening in Matthew 22 is random because they asked Jesus this question, what is the greatest commandment? It seems like it's strange because there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament like aren't they all the most important? You know, God created them. Are they all the most important? Well, there is a reason why they um, have this discussion. So, back around 100 BC to 100 AD, there were two brilliant, brilliant Jewish scholars. One was named Shammai, and one was named Hillel. They were, I mean, they had the entire Old Testament memorized. They knew everything. They were the people that you would go to if you have any questions, and they would help make everything clear. However, they disagreed on pretty much everything. The interpretation of the text, they knew the text, but they interpreted it differently. So just to give you some examples, one was the idea of saying grace at the end of a meal. For us, we say grace, hopefully, before we eat. If not, then, I mean, meet Jesus today. No, I'm kidding. Um, but they, so the dilemma came up as they said, what if the person that's designated to say grace walks away and doesn't come back? What do we do? 
Shammai comes in and says, if they don't come back, you are to wait there until they do come back. Even if it means you sit there for days, you will wait for them to come back and say grace. Hillel's like, that's ridiculous. Somebody else can step in and say grace for them. Then they talked about this idea of divorce. Shammai comes in and says, under no circumstance can divorce happen unless the spouse is unfaithful or abusive. Hillel comes in, a little bit more lenient, and says, and I quote, if your spouse burns your bread, you may divorce her. Luckily, we live in America where we don't have divorces over stupid things, right? (laughs) Obviously, I say that tongue-in-cheek because that is exactly what we do today, but I digress. Another topic, a little bit more on the serious side, was the idea of Torah. Who can study Torah? Shammai comes in and says, you have to be a Jew to study Torah. Under no circumstance can an outsider study our book because God gave us this word. Hillel comes in and says, that's ridiculous. That's not why God gave us the word. He gave us the word so that all may know the word, but if they study it, they'll become a Jew. And then the biggest, the biggest conversation they had was over the idea of the greatest commandment. They both agreed on the first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. But the second one is where they really butt heads, and this is actually a big deal because we're going to see how big of a difference these are. Shammai comes in and says the next, next greatest commandment is that we are to be obedient to the law of the Lord. That is to be the standard above everything else. If we clash the two laws together, obedience wins. Hillel comes in and says, you've missed the point. God has a bigger idea in mind. The next greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So go to Matthew, we're going to be starting in verse 35 of Matthew 22. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, Jesus speaking, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, I'm not going to dig into as to why he says mind instead of strength. He's basic, that's Matthew interpreting it from the Greek Septuagint. So it's, it's meaning strength as well, but it's talking about mental strength. Uh, this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this next verse. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So it isn't just loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It isn't just loving your neighbor. It's both. So I want to give you an example as to what this would look like in their scenario and why this was such a big deal. So let's say that I am Jewish. I'm not Jewish because, you know, I'm not Jewish. But let's say that I am going to uh, Josh's house to have a meal. And Josh has no idea that I'm Jewish. So he puts together this entire great and awesome feast, spends all day making it, ham, bacon, eggs, focus with me, um, and but as a Jew, I can't eat that. I can't eat any kind of pork or ham or anything like that. So I go to his house. He places the plate in front of me and says that he spent his entire day doing it, and he's giving this to me in love. What do I do? Shammai would say, you are to push that plate away and say, we are to be obedient. And if, you, if it means that person losing love, then so be it. Hillel and Jesus say that in this scenario, the most important thing is that we love. So If it comes down to these two clashing, you are to enjoy that in love for the person that is giving you that meal. So I'm going to lay one more foundational piece before we go any deeper because I want to look at the way that this is worded. 
It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Could it be that the capacity to love others is dependent on the capacity to love yourself? (laughs) I was waiting for it. I love it. So, and I think that this is something we struggle with because in our culture today, as soon as we say you are to love yourself, they're like, pride. But it's, they're different. Pride and loving yourself are two opposite things. Pride says, I love me because of what I can bring to the table myself. Love says, I love me because of who God created me to be. There are two completely different things. Now, for those who are not convinced as to why you should love yourself, let's look at the Bible. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Psalm 139, 13-16, this is probably one of my favorite verses in, or set of verses in the Bible. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God created you the way that he wanted to create you. And I believe personally that if you are saying that you don't love yourself, then I think that's an insult to God, not to you. Because God created you in his image. I mean, look at Genesis 1. We are created in the image of God. If you don't like what you see in the mirror, what does that say about how you feel about God? Let's keep going. If you don't have a proper love for yourself, you will never be able to fully love others. So if once that is a step, that's the first step is loving yourself. Because if you don't love yourself, there is no capacity to love others. But once we have a healthy love for ourselves, that same love should be used on everyone else. And when I say everyone else, what do I mean? Everyone else. I feel like what's, I'm guilty of this too. I think every single person in this room could say, me too. But we have the people that are closest to us, that are right in our circles, and we're like, yeah, like these people I, I love. And then you see someone else who's more in like your peripherals, if you will, and you're like, yeah, I love them. You've missed it. We are to show the same love, the same love for everyone. Let me show you. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. Romans 2.11 says, For God shows no partiality. Listen to this one. This one's super convicting. James 2, verses 8 through 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's convicting, right? Mm, okay. Now, who, who would be considered these peripherals? Because I, I feel like I don't have to do a message about loving those closest to us because I think we know how. I, I think that's the problem is we have a lot of messages built on how can I show my love, but not really addressing the issue of if I should show my love or if I should even have the love in my heart. Because I believe if you have it in your heart, you don't have to tell the person how to love. You don't have to tell me how to love Josh or Ellington or Kyrie. I, it just it comes natural. But what about those who it doesn't come natural for? 
I think that we could put this in two camps of people that we kind of put in this peripheral. One is enemies. That would be anybody who's against us in anything that we try to do. So we all have enemies. I I got a lot of enemies. A lot of people don't like me. (laughs) Um, But those are obviously harder to love. And then we have the marginalized. And this is the definition that I got from Google. Um, It says, anyone that we have in our peripherals or that we or society treat as insignificant in our heart and in our actions. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean someone who is financially struggling or someone who is, you know, on the side of the road. It is anybody that we put in our peripherals. Now, I want to give two disclaimers before we look at the, because we're going to be going through the life of Jesus, and I'm going to be showing how Jesus did this perfectly and why, like, why don't we follow this? Um, But we're going to be looking at that. So do two disclaimers. One, my goal in this discussion is not to diminish the importance of the secret place. I am not trying to say we should love God less. Rather, I am trying to increase the importance of loving others. So I'm not, again, I'm not trying to lower the secret place or make it seem like, you know, that should be insignificant, but rather I should, we should increase the standard of how much we love others because it's that important. Second disclaimer, this is also not an attempt to diminish the love to those closest to you. I'm going to be talking about the marginalized and our enemies a lot in this, and I don't want it to seem like I'm saying we shouldn't love those who are closest to us. I'm saying that rather we should love the same those who are in our peripherals. So, listen, you don't have to turn with me as we do this because we're going to be going kind of all over the place with Matthew. Um, But we're going to be starting in Matthew 1. And I want to address something really quick about Matthew. I personally believe, I mean, we don't know for sure who actually wrote Matthew. I kind of believe it was. If it wasn't Matthew, then I believe whoever wrote it wrote it from his perspective. But Matthew was, I I like it because I can relate to him, but Matthew was a enemy of the people. He was a tax collector. So for those who don't know, the tax collectors were responsible of taking money from the Jewish people, in this case, his own people, and give it to the Romans who were considered the enemies. And so that was Matthew's responsibility, and Jesus chose Matthew, which is unbelievable that Jesus would say, I'm going to choose someone that everybody else rejects. And so Matthew writes the book of Matthew, in my opinion, writes it from his perspective of Jesus using those who society would push to the side and say, I don't want anything to do with, and shows how this is the God that we serve. So I want to look at Matthew 1, and I know that this is the part that typically people skip over is the genealogy, but I think it is one of the most powerful set of verses in the Bible. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it would take a long time to do so, Um, But something Matthew does in his genealogies that aren't done in any other genealogy is he mentions women. Now, in the Eastern culture, I'm not saying I agree with this, but women are considered less in their culture. They're considered the marginalized just for being a woman. But Matthew chooses to use women, but not just women, but specific women. So let's let's look at it. The book, this is Matthew 1, we're going to be reading, uh, we'll start in verse 1. I'm probably not going to read all 16 verses, but we'll see. (laughs) the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why would he mention that? It doesn't seem like it's necessary to say, oh, this is the wife that that was the mother of these children. Well, for those who don't know, Tamar 
with someone who had lost her husband, and she dressed herself up as a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law, which then produced Perez and Zerah. This is the line of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is coming from someone who dressed himself up as a prostitute and slept with family. That's messed up. Let's keep going. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Why? What do you mention that? Who is Rahab? Well, also a prostitute. This is the line of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He came from two prostitutes? What? Let's keep going. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Who was Ruth? Ruth was a Moabitess. She is considered an outside to the Jewish people. And she got adopted into the family, but she was an outsider. She was the marginalized. And this is the king of kings and lord of lords. And this is who he's choosing to come through. Let's keep going. Okay, sorry, my notes. All right. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. And David, the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah. What? I'm about to break this table. I'm sorry. Um, If it starts to break, let me know. Um, but who was the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. And Matthew does something really funny here. I actually kind of like it, but he, uh, he throws in, it was the wife of Uriah. He doesn't say by Bathsheba, it says the wife of Uriah. So for those who don't know, Bathsheba, the story was David saw Bathsheba bathing, Bathsheba, I think that's funny, um, but saw her bathing and he chose to sleep with her, felt so bad about it that he killed her husband. And Matthew is saying, This is who Solomon came from. The line of the king of kings and lord of lords came from the murder of someone's husband to be with someone else. But we're going to skip down a little bit because there's a bunch of uh, different names I can't pronounce. Um, We're going to go, let's go to verse 15. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Mary. Imagine Mary in that culture being given Jesus, a a virgin who received a child without conceiving a child. Imagine her in that culture. She would have been the most marginalized person there. Most people probably thought that she should have been dead because she was carrying a child out of wedlock. And yet, This is who Jesus came from. He came from a line of marginalized people. So why is it that we look at the marginalized as something less than people that are closest to us? Why don't we see the value of the fellow image bearers of God throughout our world? Let's keep going. Jesus, as a rabbi, chose marginalized to be his disciples. So in the Jewish culture... They, all the students at the age of, by the age of five had to memorize the entire Torah. It was called Bet Sefer. And if they memorized it and got everything right, the teachers would say, okay, the, those kids are good, those kids are good. And they would move them on to the next level of Bet Sefer where they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. 
And then after that, they would say, okay, that kid's good, that kid's good, that kid's good. And they would move them on into training to eventually become teachers and rabbis themselves. Well, who does Jesus choose? He goes out and he finds people on boats. He goes out and finds people in town, finds people collecting taxes. What does that say? Those kids weren't good enough. They, didn't, they weren't good enough to the teachers of the law. They weren't good enough at memorizing the law. And yet Jesus said, that's what I want. That's what I want to use because they were willing to say, you know what? I'm going to drop what I'm doing and I'm going to go. And Jesus is like, that's all I need. Jesus' ministry always involved the marginalized. Let's look at, whoops, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches that we are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. This is very much about the marginalized in this passage because Jerusalem actually sits on a hill. And below that hill is a giant valley. The valley is called, in Greek, Gehenna. In Hebrew, it's called Genhanom. In this valley was a garbage pit. However, in this culture, the rich and the middle class all lived within the walls of Jerusalem, and those who were considered the lowest of the low lived outside of the city. Where could they go? Because they're on a hill. The Valley of Gin Hanom. Imagine living in a garbage pit and then looking up and seeing the city on a hill. That's, you want to know why it's called weeping and gnashing of teeth? It's called that because when they look up, they feel the lack of compassion for them. And they feel the jealousy, the, the exclusivity, whatever you, exclusivity, exclusivity. Um, anyway, they feel that exclusion. And that's where the weeping and gnashing, because they are weeping because they're outside of the city. They're not good enough. And they're gnashing their teeth because it's like all of them are up there living their life and they're not caring about me. Jesus later teaches in Matthew 6 the guidelines to giving to the marginalized. He doesn't say if you give, but he says when you give. He talks about the idea of cutting off, I'm, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong verse. He talks about don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I want to make a side note. This, this is not about the rest of this. Kind of, well, I guess it kind of is. I feel like this is something the church fails at all the time is how we choose to give to the marginalized. I see on social media all the time, there'll be somebody who stands up, stands beside somebody who needs something. Hey, church, this guy don't have a house. He don't have a car. But you gave him $20,000, so we're going to buy him something. And all you see in his face is embarrassment. It is, I'm telling you, it is one of the most disgusting things to me because I, I imagine being someone who has nothing and having somebody come up to you and say, you want to be in a video? And they're like, uh, what? It's like, we'll give you $20,000. Um, okay. And then have thousands of people see that you are marginalized. It's like the church is celebrating people being marginalized. It's the opposite of the gospel. Whew. Okay. We can pull back a little bit, Matt. Jesus teaches in Matthew 7 the idea of not judging people. We see this quoted all the time, especially in the King James. Judge not, lest you be judged. Spoiler alert, this has nothing to do with hell and heaven. Nothing at all. The idea of judging in this verse is the idea of devaluing people. 
not judging someone based on what they look like, what they sound like, what their lifestyle's like, but seeing them as an image bearer. And this verse is, and Jesus is teaching here that if you judge someone based on their character and devalue them, then you yourself will be devalued. In Matthew 8, Matthew heals a leprous man. For those who don't know, leprosy is, is a very contagious, very, I hate to say gross, but it's just, it is what it is. It's, it's something, it's a, basically you get these lesions all over your body. And according to the law, you are unclean. You are separated from everybody else. And yet Jesus goes to someone, because keep in mind, it says in Numbers 19.22, when, and whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And anyone who touches it will be unclean until evening. This is talking about ritually unclean. It's not talking about sin. It's talking about being ritually unclean. But Jesus was willing to become ritually unclean by laying his hands on a man with leprosy and heal him, something that nobody else would do. A great, uh, listen, if you haven't watched the Chosen series, you need to watch it. It is, <laughs> it's so good. There is a scene where it shows the leprous man that comes up to Jesus and Jesus doesn't only touch him, he embraces him. <sighs> Man, if only we would see the marginalized and instead of just touching them, we would embrace them and show them love. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals a woman with the issue of blood. This is another type of being ritually unclean. When you have an issue of blood, you are to be separated from the group of people. And yet this woman came to Jesus and listen what Jesus said. Listen to the love in this. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. I'm going to say it again. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Love and compassion. In Matthew 12, Jesus heals and shows love on the Sabbath. This is a great example of whenever Jesus says, love your neighbor, and it being in op- opposition with the obedience part, this is Jesus saying, this is him living this out in Matthew 12. So I'm going to read this. It says, he went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Obviously, in that scenario, he would have been marginalized. People would have been like, no, stay away from me. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Listen to this, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored. Compassion and love over anything else. This is, Jesus is living this out perfect. Matthew 17 talks about Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy. Listen to how it describes the boy, and this what would you do in this scenario if you saw this? When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, on my son he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. What would we do? What would we do right now if somebody in this audience were to fail and start having seizures and they were demon-possessed? What would we do? Would we be like, what in the world is he doing? Or would we show compassion and love even for that person? In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches 
about showing infinite forgiveness using a servant who cannot pay his debt back. So he talks about this idea of a servant who goes uh, to a, a master or to a king and asks him for forgiveness of his debts because he owed what they believe to be hundreds of lifetimes worth of payment. And he says, you're forgiven. And then that person who just got forgiveness goes out and finds somebody else who says, can you show me forgiveness? And he only owed him about a day's worth pay. And that guy said, no, you must pay me back. You must pay me back. And he was like threatening his life. And that person ended up, the person who received the debt, I'm sorry, the person who received forgiveness the first time ended up being thrown in prison until he paid his debt off in full. And Jesus is saying through this parable that even those who owe you everything deserve that same love, that same compassion and same mercy that you show those who don't owe you anything. Matthew 19, it says, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is one of the most controversial things I think Jesus ever said. And I heard this, I heard, this is a picture. This is not, don't, don't think about this too theologically, but I'm just creating a picture for you. So imagine we're in heaven, okay? All, let's say that we passed away. We're in heaven and we're sitting at this feast with Jesus. And as we're sitting, we're placed, you know, let's say that Jesus is where Kyle is and I'm right here. And Jesus, this is where Jesus wants me to sit. And then suddenly you see someone walk in who prayed the prayer to receive Jesus the day before they died. You having spent your whole life, you're over here. And then Jesus looks at that person and says, hey, come, come sit next to me. What would your response be? Would it be jealousy? If it would be jealousy, you've missed it. But if it's love and compassion, you will say, why don't you take my seat? Why don't you sit next to Jesus and I'll sit over here. This is how important it is because Jesus is saying those who are last will be first. We're going to get to heaven or, or heaven's going to come here, whatever, whatever happens first. And it's going to look a lot different than we think it's going to look. This is something we say all the time here. We're going to see people there that we never thought would have been closest to Jesus, that they're going to be walking step in step with Jesus. And we're going to be like, what? Why is that? Is it because that person actually didn't do anything, or is it because we lowered our standard on that image bearer of God? <laughs> um, all right. All right, bring it down, Matt. All right, so let's look towards the end of Jesus' life. I'm, I'm trying to hurt because I, I have a lot of stuff here, and I don't want to miss anything. Let's look at towards the end of Jesus' life, or specifically on the cross, in Luke 23. This is not in Matthew, so I'm going to Luke here. This is, this is by far my favorite, my favorite moment in Jesus' life. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him and said, Are you not Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Ooh, listen to this next part. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to a thief on a cross next to him, someone that the Jewish people were like, this person deserves death, this person deserves where they're at. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
to a thief, someone who is the most, in this instance, the most hated person probably in Jerusalem because he probably did something to deserve being crucified by the Jewish people. And he says, forgive me. And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. I picture that moment, Jesus walking in the gates in heaven rejoicing and celebrating because there's a thief who once was far from God is coming home with his master. It's unbelievable, selfless love. In Jesus' dying breaths, he said about his killers, the people who put him in the, on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. What would we do if we are placed on a cross by people who hate us and reject everything we say? Would we be in a place where we can say, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? Or would we be, Lord, condemn them? Ooh, I see so, mm, I see so many, so many people who teach this idea of God's going to unleash his wrath where it needs to be unleashed. And those who hate God's people will be burned in a fiery pit. But they don't even mention the idea of what if our calling is not to condemn them, but to forgive them. Now there are endless examples that I could keep going with, especially in the old Testament, God choosing Israel, a group of slaves, the most marginalized people possibly in the entire world. God says, I want that. That's the people I want. I remember my covenant with Abraham. I know they're in slavery, but those are my people. Now, outside of the Bible, if nothing else, Yahweh chose me. I think about my life. Listen, I'm not trying to throw a pity party, but throughout my life, I have been bullied. I have been marginalized by people around me. I'm, I'm alone a lot. And I'm not saying that to say I'm like, I'm sad, whatever, but yeah, but, but God comes into my story and says, I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you think you have flaws in. All I know is I want to work in you in ways that I've never worked in anyone else. I want to do something new and fresh in you. And some of you have that same exact experience, but my question is, why don't we do the same thing for other people? Why don't we see other people who are in their mess and say, listen, I, don't, I, don't, I know that you don't have a lot to bring to the table, but I don't care. I love you because you are an image bearer of God, and I'm going to show love for you, not because I have to, but because this is who I am. <laughs> it ultimately comes down to the heart If you are only being compassionate because you have to, you will not reap the blessing that actually comes with compassion. Now, look at Jesus. Romans talks about Jesus' heart. This isn't about his actions. This is his heart. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves everyone. He does not lack a love because someone is disqualified for something that's out of their control or something that even is in their control that they messed up in. He loves everyone. So why don't we? If we claim to follow Jesus, if he is our rabbi, if he is our Lord, why don't we show the same love? Why don't we love 
everyone, not just our family, not just those closest to us, why don't we love even those who are the most hateful people to us, those who are the most unqualified by church standards, why don't we show them that exact same love? Isaiah, you can actually go ahead and start coming up here. As I kind of bring this thing down a little bit, Isaiah will help me preach a little bit. (laughs) I told him I about had him come do it the whole time because I'd have been going, but that would have been off topic or off off course. Anyways, I want to close with a set of verses, and this is what I want to be the main point of the entire thing. So if you don't hear anything else I say, listen to these verses. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. But whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Listen to this. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister must also love their brother or sister. You know, let me, let me paint you a picture here. Let's say we have one person over here. We'll call his name Bob. Bob is an atheist. He has no desire to serve God whatsoever, yet in everything he does, he shows love to everyone around him. Then over here, you have Janet. Best name I can think of off the top of my head. Janet spends all of her time in the secret place, loving God with everything she has, giving everything she has to God, and yet she doesn't show love for others. Which one is greater? Trick question. They're actually the same. You have to have both. You can't just say, I love God with everything I got. I'm going to give you everything I have to offer. But so-and-so at work, we'll just push them off. I'll be praying for them. That's what we say all the time is we see someone that we don't like and we're like, Lord, make them better. Right, right? But what if, what if that person is exactly where they're supposed to be in your life so that you can love them exactly how they are? And over here, the atheist, it's the same way the other way around, by the way. If you're thinking, again, I'm not diminishing the love for God. If you only love others and don't have a love for God, you really don't love others. It's the same way. But you cannot, I'm going to use a Damon Thompson and Josh term, you can't legally say that you love God if you don't love others. Plain and simple. There's no contingencies on that. You must love others. Jesus said in John 13, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Why? If you love one another. That is the standard. We are followers of Jesus. What comes from followers of Jesus is love. You know what? I wasn't going to do this. I'm going to pull the lyrics from one of my favorite lyrically songs of all time. It's called Proof of Your Love. It's an older song. It's a K-Love song, whatever. I don't care. But listen, listen to these lyrics. Listen to this. If I sing but don't have love, I waste my breath with every song. 
I bring an empty voice, a hollow noise. If I speak with a silver tongue, convince a crowd, but don't have love, I leave a bitter taste with every word I say. Let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. Let my love look like you and what you're made of, how you lived and how you died. Love is sacrifice. The bridge says, if I give, I'm sorry, the next verse says, if I give to a needy soul but don't have love, then who is poor? It seems all the poverty is found in me. The bridge says, when it's all said and done, when we sing our final song, only love remains. My question is, does, is your life the proof of his love? Or does it preach a different story? Is your story, I have a secret place with God. Look how high I am. I'm going to love when it's easy. I'm going to love when it's convenient. Or does it say, I'm going to love no matter the circumstance? No matter the circumstance. That's right. All right. I want to read this close. I I wrote down some thoughts in a a thing here. So I'm going to read this to you. As a child of God, our calling is to love God wholeheartedly and love people wholeheartedly. Separating one from another is separating you from love himself. We cannot, by God's standards, say that we love him, yet not love those around us and vice versa. The mission of God has always been and always will be built on love. So love. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strengths. Love yourself, for you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Love your friends, for they are there when you need them the most. And finally, love your enemies and those who are in your peripherals, because they too deserve not only God's love, but the love of his kids. Can everybody bow your heads for a moment? Maybe you're in here today, and you... You've never given your life to Jesus. I never want to end a message without ever even giving this opportunity. If that's you, there is a God in heaven and a God here on earth with us presently who loves you with every fiber of his being, who cares for you so much that he sent his only son to die so that you can be bound to him. If that's you, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. I'm not gonna ask you to do anything that's going to embarrass you. All you have to do is say yes to him and follow him. It'll be the best decision you ever made. I'm not saying your life's going to get easier, but you'll have God, which makes it better. Maybe you're in here today and you don't have a love for yourself. Maybe you look in the mirror and you don't like what looks back. This was me for years. Every morning I'd wake up like, what am I doing? But then I found the one who looks at me and says, I choose you. With everything that you have, all the mistakes you carry, every burden you own, I want you. And then he wants you too. You can love yourself. Don't feel bad about loving yourself. You can love yourself because God is in you. And that's all that matters. 
Maybe you're in here today and you have somebody who you would consider an enemy who has done everything wrong against you, who has given you every reason to just hate and to exclude from your life. I'm here to tell you they're in your life on purpose and you are to love them anyway. Not because you have to, but because if you claim to follow Jesus who loved his enemies, you yourself should love your enemies, even though it's hard. Love isn't easy. As that song said, love is sacrifice. Now, this is for everybody, including myself. If you have people in your life that you have in your peripherals, people that you see, they don't have to necessarily be, you know, homeless or anything like that or have financial difficulty. Anybody in your life, period, who you would place in your peripherals, do you see them less than the people closest to you? If you were to be placed in front of both of them and had to make a decision, would it be an easy decision or would it be I can't choose because I love them the same? If that's you, my challenge, and not if that's you, that is all of us, we all struggle with this. But I challenge us to not just show love, but have love. Let love be the deepest part of your being that I don't have to tell you how to love because you're going to have so much love that you're just going to show it. That's just going to be who you are. The overflow of your life will be love. What would happen? Yeah, actually, y'all can raise your heads up. What would happen if a small group of people in Columbia, South Carolina would say, we're going to love everyone with everything that we got with no contingencies with nothing we're just going to love because God loves us we're going to bring our standard of love for others with our standard of love for God they're going to walk hand in hand because Jesus said on these two build all of the law and commandments think about the tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 It says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. The problem here, they did it for themselves. What if we did the same thing, but we did it out of a place of love, speaking the same language of love for the purpose of God and the purpose of those around us? What would happen? Our city would be changed. Our city would be built. Listen, we talk about this idea of on earth as it is in heaven. What does heaven look like? Love. Heaven has no contingencies on love. So why do we? Jesus, thank you that you have shown us what it's like to love, that you have chose a people like us, people, like someone like me who has given you every reason to bow out, every reason to step away, but you saw me as the person you created, to me, created me to be and say, I choose you regardless of where you're coming from. Thank you. But Lord, I ask that you give us that same passion, fire, and love that Jesus himself had for others. That we would not see people for the things that disqualify them in our mind for ourself. Because in reality, nothing disqualifies them from ourself in love. 
Help us, Lord, to show love for others around us, for those who are our enemies, for those who are the marginalized. Help us to love ourselves, because if we don't love ourselves, we'll never know how to love others. Help us, Jesus. We love you so much, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that this week you would put somebody in front of us that's going to be difficult to love. I know it's a dangerous prayer, but Lord, put somebody in front of us this week that is, that is going to seem impossible to love so that we can actually begin to practice this love for others. Oh, Lord, you're so good. You're so good. You are love himself. And we know how to love because you showed us in how you loved us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you.